want to start off with, so uh, you follow with us, and then if you have a marker in your Bible, mark the place, because we may be getting back around to it. We have been asked of late several times concerning some questions. We've dealt with this subject only once. That's been too awfully long ago, but of course some of the people wasn't here, and they have asked questions for some time, and I thought give it to God in prayer and see when would be a good time to recap some of the things and perhaps see if the Spirit had maybe dealt in some new measure, some new way. Questions have been, of course, what is blaspheme? How do we blaspheme? Uh, is there an unpardonable sin? Is there sin unto death? If so, what is it? And uh, all would, I suppose, lie in this category, and we want to meet them tonight scripturally if we can at all. You that perhaps have already uh, been entertained by these verses or by this message, you just hold your seat because we're liable to come up with something new on you. You may not know as much as you think you do. And otherwise than that, while well, you just follow right along, it might uh, kind of set us in motion again. All of this, all these questions, I'm sure, in view of the increasing... Uh, invasion of demonic forces in the house of God and on the children of God and people are becoming concerned. They know that if the Bible speaks the truth, they know that they do know because something inside of them speaks out that there uh, is a time when God just quits dealing with people. He doesn't bother with them. And uh, I think people are concerned. I think they want to find out uh, maybe what God calls unpardonable sin what really is blaspheme because a lot of people are under the impression that somebody or maybe they themselves has blasphemed the Holy Ghost and therefore uh, don't have forgiveness or can't get it regardless but we want to move into these areas by starting with Scripture Hebrews 4 and 6 and we'll be in Hebrews for about uh, three different Scriptures so just kind of Mark it in there. Hebrews, the sixth chapter. I want to read and deal with some old familiar scriptures there. The Apostle Paul is exhorting the Hebrews about some maturing, and what maturing consists of, and the dangers, I think, of keeping just elementary salvation or the first things of salvation. I think he's challenging them, and I think probably if he was standing here uh, today, he would challenge us by just staying in primary class, kindergarten, so to speak, just the basics of a doctrine without entering into some of the deeper precepts. Starts out this way, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of the doctrine of baptism, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. This will we do, if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, of the heavenly gift, and have made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, who renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Verses 4 to 6, we'll deal with probably. Now Hebrews, 
the 10th chapter, the 25th verse, or from the 24th on through the 26th, 10th chapter of Hebrews, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And we want to read Hebrews 12 and 17. Might be good if you mark down these chapters and read them in their fullness. I'm sure you're acquainted with them. Verse 16, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now we want to go to 1 John 5. 16 and 17. First John. That's Big John. I want to go to Big John, Chris. All right? Okay. Big John, Christopher. Not you, Chris. First John 5, 16 and 17. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, Somebody don't have it. Several somebody don't have it. Somebody better practice. Danny, are you still turning pages? Are you doing that just to be contrary or, or you haven't found it? I asked Danny that because a lot of times I'll be sitting waiting and he's just fiddling with pages like that. He likes to stay here a long time. I don't know if well, are they going to find out who shot J.R. tonight or not? <laughs> Is it Friday night? Well, then we're in no hurry, are we? <laughs> okay. All right. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. And we want to read Matthew 12 and 31, be the last scripture. All of these actually are in relation, although they've been asked by different people on various times, actually they're really related, and I thought it's, it's quite amazing how God deals with hearts on different scriptures, yet with the same thought in view. Hebrews 12 and 17, or Matthew 12, 31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blaspheme shall be forgiven unto men, but the blaspheme against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer, Father.
tonight as we're faced with these scriptures, Father, in which thou hast left for us to grapple with, we beseech thee, Father, for thy help and for thy grace to sustain us. And for thy words, Father, as if you would speak directly to us. Father, we don't want no additions of our own, no ideas or opinions of our own. We only want your word, what it says, what it is meaning, Father. And we pray that you would keep us upon that and that alone. Father, stir up our pure minds and our heart. Deal with the minds of the young here this evening as well as the old. Let us realize that this is serious business, that this is a serious hour. And you are identifying yourself with us in the hopes that we will identify ourselves with you. Father, you are asking, yea, even begging or beseeching, great and mighty as thou art, that man would lay down the things of this world and the places thereof and seek first the kingdom of heaven. Father, this is your desire. We realize this. We also know that man's heart and mind is troubled. We pray, Father, that we could put an end to a lot of his problems a lot of his trouble, Father, with an explanation of thy gospel, and also by the same token, challenge hearts, Father, who are unwarily, seemingly running headlong into the pits of hell or destruction, unaware, Father, position they're in and where it's leading. We pray that eyes would be open, minds, O oh God, would comprehend and see, and souls would cry out then and ask for a rescue by the Spirit of God before it would be too late. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hebrews 6, 4, 5, and 6, of course, a popular meaning. I'm sure all of you are aware of this, that attached to this is that if you backslide, there is no hope. Amen. You heard that, and I've heard people come and say, well, I'm backslid, or else if a deliberate sin of a believer is unforgivable, if we sin deliberately, well, then that's unforgivable. I want you to notice in verse 6, one of the key words, the bottom line, so to speak, is fall away. If they should fall away, or in other words, if they should apostatize. This is not talking about a lapse, not talking about times when perhaps we lapse in our faith, or it's not even talking about neglect, but it's talking about a forsaking, it's talking about a falling away, uh, apostatizing. And uh, what you need to know to understand it is this is an epistle to the Hebrews. Now, all Scripture is for us, but all Scripture is not about us. And this Scripture, of course, holds a warning for us and an omen for us, and we need to remember that. But it is not about us. It's about the Hebrews. First identification is who are the Hebrews. They're Jewish converts to the Christian faith, the gospel, in the first century of this dispensation, after the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, after the day of Pentecost, after the church was born, we can further identify them as being Jews by reading the word again, crucifying the Son of Man afresh. In other words, the Greek rendition of that is crucifying him again. This would indicate the Jewish aspect of this epistle because we have not crucified him the first time. So you see, it is talking about it. It's a hard thing. That's why Paul wrote that it is a hard thing for the Jews to embrace the gospel. It was a hard thing for him to turn away from his old order. A lot harder for him than it was Gentiles when they heard the message of salvation and resurrection and all of this. It was much harder for a Jew that had been brought up to look for a, 
an outward splendor for a king and all of these things they'd hoped for, it was hard for them to finally turn from their old order and turn and embrace Jesus as the Messiah, as the resurrected one, as the one that was going to restore to them the kingdom again. It was hard for them to realize this, and it was hard for them to turn. And then so once they had turned to this, it was equally as hard or harder for them to stay in it. They faced persecution, things perhaps that we don't know anything about. But in view of the fact that persecution is coming upon the world, has entered in, in a sense, upon the church, maybe not in our continent as yet, other than mentally, but in view of this fact, I think it would be well if we would take some of the warnings that the Apostle Paul placed here to the Hebrews and let them know fully assured that there is no backward step in Christ. In fact, I doubt seriously that he is pleased with us at a standstill. But certainly there is no backward step with him. You can see as Stephen was stoned to death simply because he embraced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, it said, persecuted the church in such a hideous fashion, going from house to house, binding the Christians, putting them to death in every way. Now this pressure was so great that Paul exhorted with some scriptures. Now when the Jews apostatized, they went back to the temple. They were forced to make a public recantation. This is what they had to do. They had to deny the faith and they had to deny the gospel. They had to say that Jesus was a bastard. They had to say that his blood had no power at all to remit sins. They had to embrace against the, again the old rituals of animal sacrifice. And when they renounced Christ, they walked back into the darkness from which his glorious light had embraced them and called them out from darkness into his marvelous light. And in doing that, and if they did, Paul was saying beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had crossed the deadline. I want that to sink in just a little bit. Of course, I doubt seriously that those Jews in their heart ever thought that there would be a time when their cup was filled and probably went under the same summation that many of us do tonight that there is no time when the deadline will be upon us. But I think we need to be aware that God has fully persuaded in his own mind when each individual has crossed the deadline and there's no way back. We're going to get into that before long. But Paul was uh, so touched by the feeling of these individuals that he wrote a scripture just right to them, and you find that in Hebrews about the 12th chapter, verse 1 and 4, I believe it is. Let me see if I can find it and read it. Now listen to what he says to these Hebrews. Wherefore, seeing we also are accomplished about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your mind. And he says these words, you have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. In other words, the Apostle Paul was writing a scripture to them and saying when you are enticed, when you are persecuted, when you feel obligated to turn away from Christ and His holiness and His power and the things He brought you out of, away from the animal sacrifices into the one supreme sacrifice and you are tempted to turn back to that, he said, focus your eyes upon Jesus. Now we're not in animal sacrifices. I doubt seriously none of us ever come out of animal sacrifices at all. But there is a clear warning in the Apostle Paul. He brought us, in a sense, from the world. He placed his spirit within us and gave us light when there was none. I think he's telling us that if we continue to be moved and motivated by our own sinful lusts and desires, that there is a time when we ourselves would cross the deadline and there would be no way back. A lot of people say, well, I don't think that is ever going to happen, but I think we'll uh, probably get to that before too long. Now, Hebrews 10.25 sheds a little bit more light on this, and we just read that. Now, here's what it says. Let's take 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, are without stumbling, for he is faithful at promise. Let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Now the key word for that is not neglect necessarily or not carelessness. These things only lead to what the Apostle Paul is focusing his attention on. If you want to know the steps until a final apostasy, all you've got to do is follow the life of the Jews and the life of Israel, and you'll find out first there was carelessness. Amen? First they become careless about a God that was as great as he was. They become careless about the things God had done for them. They become careless in giving thanks. And then after their carelessness, there came neglect. Neglecting the assembling of their selves together, neglecting where their strength was, neglecting where their source of power was, neglecting giving thanks to God, until finally carelessness and neglect brought them to apostasy, the final stage where there was no way back. Now let me say this, I don't believe, and I am sincere in it, I don't believe that there's a soul in, a, in the church of God as yet. Let me qualify that as yet. That has, in a sense, been apostatized. I'm talking about the living one now. But there are some, and I think God is trying to get to us. There are some of us that have been careless about God's work, have been careless about God's love, been careless about the miracles of God in our life, and have been careless about our service to Him, and have been negligent in doing the things that God had asked us to do, and all of these are steps to apostasy. I don't think I'm saying this to scare us, but I think I'm saying this 
to challenge us and let you know that the enemy will rock you to sleep. He'll try to let you think that you can continue to do the things you want to do until finally you decide that you worship God the way He wants you to do. Now, that will never happen. And he said the forsaking or leaving the Christian faith in a sense and going back to the temple and going back to its ordinances. I think we have a parallel there. I think we have something that God is trying to say to us. He was talking to the Jewish converts then. He was telling them that there is a serious concern in his mind that because of persecution and of being mocked and scoffed and persecuted from one end of their life to the other, that there was a concern in his mind that they would turn from God, go back to the temple and embrace its ordinances, or in other words, its rules and its bylaws. I'll say again, we are not from the temple. We have never offered sacrifices other than offered sacrifices to the world. Amen? Our bodies, we present it as a living sacrifice to the world. You did it and I did it. Amen? And God is saying He wants no less from us as He said, therefore present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I think the challenge comes is when He has delivered us from the ordinances of the world and the laws of the world and the rituals of the world and the demands of the world and He has delivered us from this and from, so to speak, dead works and then our desires, our fleshly appetites stand and beckon us to come back and taste one more time of the things of this world. I don't know how many of us, and I, would, I, I wouldn't even want you to lift up your hands, but qualifying this yourself, and I'm sure it would hit the majority of us, once we felt the cleansing flow from Calvary, move over us and lift the burden from our heart, and then we felt the glowing power of the Holy Ghost come inside of us, we wanted to do nothing but serve God. We wanted to do nothing but be at the house of God. And whatever we had to put off of the flesh, we would gladly do it for Jesus. But now, let's look at us now. And let's see if perhaps we might have taken one or maybe two steps to the final end where God says the deadline has been crossed. Let's see if we want to be in God's house as much now as we used to. I'm sure we can find a lot of excuses why, and we shouldn't. After all, when we first came into this thing, our eyes were blinded to the faults of our neighbors and friends. We saw nothing but good. Would to God he'd blind our eyes some more. Hallelujah. Because it is not God that opened our eyes for that. It's the power of the enemy. God focuses our attention upon that which is good and acceptable in his sight. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. But let me ask yourself, let me ask you a question. Did those reasons work when you first came to Jesus? When you first left the world or the temple, so to speak, and when you first put behind you its laws and its demands on you, and you turned again to God and accepted Him and His laws, and they bound them in your heart, and you loved them, and you embraced them, and you shouted about them, and you had a tingle up and down your spine, and you wanted to do nothing, only tell mankind about Jesus. 
Now then, where are we at tonight? Is the zeal still burning inside? Do we still come to God's house as often as we did? Are we careless about His love and, and, and are we careless about giving Him praise? Has there been some carelessness? Has that produced neglect? And if it has, saint of God, let me severely warn you that you are not too far from the crossing of the line. I mean it. It's gospel. Amen. And we're too close to the end of time to be begin to play with the presence of God. And if God is not as sweet to you as He used to be, you better find something that flow in the waters and make the bitter water sweet. And that thing is the cross of Calvary, the tree from Mount Zion. But it's, Paul says, as the manner of some is. In other words, he's saying now that there's already been some that has left this glorious truth. Now, if you feel like it's hard to realize that somebody could have this wonderful truth in the place of temple ordinances and that bloody mess of sacrificing, you wonder, you sit here and you wonder, how could anybody trade the blood of Jesus Christ for the blood of bulls and goats? How could anybody do such a dastardly deed? In other words, how could anybody do away with the cleanliness of coming to an altar or making an altar in the house and there's no blood you have to mess with. You don't have to slaughter. You don't have to go to the outer court. You don't have to worry about what the priest will do. You come directly to God. And then you wonder how in God's name can anybody under any amount of persecution, how in God's name can they turn this down and go back into those things? Consider then yourself, seeing that we don't know too much about sacrifices of blood and bulls and goats and lambs. Consider therefore yourself, how can any of us, having tasted of the powers of the world to come, having felt God's Spirit up and down our spine, having known the joy of what it feels like to have our sins lifted from the cross of Calvary. How in God's name can we turn from Him to the weak and beggarly elements of this world? And yet we do. Mm -hmm. How many of us have managed to push little things in there and all the time, now hear me, all the time, Jesus has said time and time again, I don't want them in your life. He has challenged some of us. He's called us openly. He has told us what He's demanded of us and told us some, some things He didn't want us involved in. And some way or somehow we make excuse has to continue with those things. All the time He's saying, you're being careless about my words. You're not listening to it. Amen. I don't care whether a colored man preaches it or a donkey preaches it. It's God's Word. And whenever, you're dis, uh, whenever your mind discontinues thinking on it, then you're careless about God's Word. And then he's saying you're neglectful of your duties. You know, I've heard it said and testified and perhaps we really mean it and maybe our minds are blinded to it. I don't know. Well, we testify that I love the Lord with all of my heart, my mind, my soul, and my body. And yet if we're not careful, he'll be relegated to number two spot, very often number three or number four. 
Most of the time, God comes behind our husband, wife, our family. Amen? Most of the time, He comes behind our jobs. And the hardest thing for me to imagine is anymore He comes behind our school systems. Amen, Brother Hoskell. What is that about number four for God? That's don't make the mistake of saying, I love Him with all my heart, mind, soul, and body. There's a need there, friend. There's a need for us to come again to the altar and come again to the cross and be reevaluated as to where we stand. I'm not throwing off on you. I'm not telling you that you need to do away with these things. And I'm saying, God first, God first, God first. Little Johnny and little Mary, and pardon me, uh, find something that the school says they got to do, and we see that it's done. Amen. Oh, well, it's important, but is it? Isn't there some place down the line where we could take a stand and they would understand and appreciate doing that? Has that not been done? Can it not be done again? I'm not pleading against the school system other than it, it's, uh, it's atheist-oriented. Powers of hell would take away every ounce of salvation your child ever had. Amen. They would put inside of it the things that would do away with God and His power and His future of your child. They'd confuse the mind of your child and yet somewhere or somehow we regulate that above God. God help us. Of course, that's carelessness and neglect. I don't think I meant to say this. But I think I'm constrained as the Apostle Paul to some way, somehow, gouge a hole in our, this air balloon that we have sailed so high with for so long and reconciled ourselves and said, well, it must be. It's part of our society and we have to go along with it. No, we don't. 